listening to audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit twinvillageschurch.org. We are going to be in uh, Luke chapter 7, uh, the first 17 verses of Luke 7. And a, a lot has been said, and there have been prayers prayed for, for Lewiston um, and for the tragedy that is Lewiston and what happened there this week. Um, I, I want to draw your attention to, to a couple things. Um, number one, when we look at this passage um, in Luke 7, it deals with the topic of death. And I don't want you to think for a moment um, that I am smart enough to have planned this. Um, God is sovereign over all of this. And so the fact that we find ourselves in the first 17 verses of Luke 7 is no mistake. Um, lives um, were changed this week. Many lives were changed this week to varying degrees. Lives were changed perhaps permanently because of this week. And it revolves around death. But if we go a little bit deeper than that, what lies at the heart of all of this is sin. And death is the result of, of sin. And so we have to confront this morning the reality of, of death. It is a common enemy of all of us. It's perhaps for some the greatest enemy. But underneath that is the reality of, of sin. And so we need to make sure that we are thinking correctly about what we've seen and what we've heard over this past week. And I want to encourage you, um, it's already been said and I'm going to say it again and you'll hear it by God's grace through this message this morning, that we have hope, the greatest hope, Amen. right? And we need to be quick to share that hope, but we need to be quick to be compassionate because... What happened was real, and the pain and the suffering is, is real. So I say that this morning, and I had a different introduction to this morning, and I was, shared it with faith. I'm like, I can't, I can't say it at this point. I might say it at some point during the sermon, but I can't say it now. But I do want to ask you to, to pray um, specifically for Pastor Gary Bragg. Um, Pastor Gary Bragg, pastors Thomas Memorial Baptist Church in Lewiston, and that church is right down in the heart of all of this, and he has been asked to speak. They're having a vigil uh, this evening at 6 o'clock um, in Lewiston, and he has been asked to speak there, and so I've met Gary once. Um, he is a, he's a good man, and he has an opportunity to bring truth and 
bring light and the hope of the gospel to, to the city of Lewiston, and they will be part of a very, very long healing process for, for that city and for that region. So just be praying for, I would ask you to pray for Gary Bragg of Thomas Memorial Baptist Church. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read for us uh, Luke 7, verses 1 to 17, and then I will pray for us, and then we will uh, spend time in the Word of God this morning. And it's my prayer, as it always is, is that um, we would be encouraged and challenged um, in our time in God's Word this morning, that we would trust um, what God's Word has to say this morning. So I'll ask you to please stand for the reading of God's words. This is Luke chapter 7. Verses 1 to 17, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these words. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and to heal his servants. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lords, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the words and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man, under set, a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such a faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bier. And the bearers stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for our time this morning. Lord, I thank you for the gift of your words. 
Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear and minds to understand. Lord, I pray that we would have hearts to be moved um, this morning. Lord, that we would trust your words, that we would find comfort, that we would find assurance. Lord, that we would see the power of your word in our lives, and I pray this in your name. Amen. So Jesus has finished the, the Sermon on the Mount, and he now has, is coming down, and he come, finds himself now in the town of Capernaum, on the, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so these first two sentences, right, these first two verses in Luke 7 are, are set the setting for the scene. And in the city of Capernaum, or in the town of Capernaum, there is a centurion, and that's not odd at all. A centurion was a, a Roman soldier. He was in charge of a hundred men. Centurions had a history of, of serving in the Roman Empire, serving the Roman army. And this man had risen through the ranks and finds himself as a centurion. Centurions typically um, are not liked by the Jews. They were known to be heartless at times, ruthless, shrewd, a tad corrupt. They were the police squad. They helped collect taxes. They could have been a goon squad, for all we know. The people didn't like centurions and those who were under their charge. But this centurion was obviously a little bit different. Because even in this very setting, Luke lets us know that this centurion had a servant. But this servant was highly valued by this centurion. There was a relationship that this tough, gruff, no-nonsense Roman soldier had with this servant. He had compassion on this man. He probably was a personal servant. There was a relationship that went beyond military to personal. And we find that this centurion's servant is on his deathbed. That this servant, right, was up against man's last and greatest enemy, death. This centurion has heard about this man, Jesus. And so he sends, he, he goes to these Jewish elders that are in his jurisdiction and asks them to, hey, go to this Jesus and ask him to, to come here and to, to heal my beloved servants. Now, these, these elders of the Jews, they would have been older men, very well respected in the community. They might have been part of the synagogue, they might not, but they were very well respected men. And these men leave, and they go, and they find Jesus. And when they come and they, to Jesus, they, they plead with him. They beg him to, to, to come help this centurion, because in their eyes, this centurion was worthy to have Jesus intervene in his life. After all, this centurion, he was different than the other centurions. He actually, he loved Israel. And he helped build 
the synagogue. The centurion was a man of means, and he was a generous man. But the centurion also would have known that if there's, if there's religious stability in his jurisdiction, politically, that's good for him. It makes his job a little bit easier. But this man, this centurion, as the elders were telling Jesus, he was a good guy, and he deserves to have you help him. Now, Jesus talked about this exact thing. We looked at it last week in chapter 6, verse 33. And if you do good, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. He sees this reciprocal relationship that the, that the elders of the Jews are, 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 are using to their advantage. Okay, this, this centurion has helped them, so now they need to help the centurion because if they help the centurion, the centurion will probably help them again. Right? It's the back scratching. And, and if, we, if we think about this for a moment, it seems like that the elders of the Jews were almost trying to manipulate Jesus coerce him into doing what they want. Because this centurion was a, was, a, was a good guy, and he deserves to have you help him, Jesus. You see, the, the Jewish elders were thinking in terms of, of worthiness and, and, of, and of merit. They believed that if someone did good, they deserved to receive Blessing, and in fact, that's the way a lot of us think. That's actually like a basic assumption I think a lot of us operate under, and that good things, good people deserve to have good things happen to, to them. Right? And when it doesn't happen, right, it messes with us a little bit. But this is the way that they're living. This is what they're thinking, that the centurion was worthy of Jesus' attention because, after all, Jesus, he loves Israel and he helped build our synagogue, right? It, it, it's it's works-based, right? It's earning favor. When in reality, right, if we step back and, and think about this, right, no one is worthy, And Scripture is clear on this. Ephesians 2.3 says that we're children of wrath. Romans 5.10 says that while we were enemies of God's. Colossians 1.21 says that we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Romans 3.9-20. Read it. No one does good. Our throats are open graves. No one seeks after God. No one. You see, what's happening here is, is man's view on worth and merit. Because in reality, what the Bible tells us is that the centurion deserves judgments, not grace. And so as, as I was reading this this week and studying this this week, 
I, I was thinking in my mind, right? And it's a good thing this is like my mind and not the word God's. If ever the table was set for Jesus to lower the boom on the Jewish elders, it's now. But we don't read that. We don't read Jesus saying, <laughs> grab a seat and laying into them. We read in the first part of verse 6 that what happens? That Jesus went with them. See, there, there's something which, which tells us that there's something bigger happening here. There's, there's a bigger lesson to be learned in this situation, and Jesus is just kind of biding his time. He knows. But then as we look at verse, the last part of verse 6 to verse 8, it's fascinating because the centurion changes his mind. And he sends a, a second delegation, if you will. He sends his friends. Now, we don't know why the centurion changed his mind. Because he thought, hey, listen, have Jesus come and heal my servants. And now it's kind of like, mm, no. But all we know is that this change in mind is a signal and speaks to the humility and the faith that this centurion had. He realizes that I'm not worthy to have Jesus come into my house. In fact, I, I'm not worthy to go, like, go seek him out and find him and have a conversation with him. I can't presume that. And so these friends go and they share these words. They, they call him Lord, right? And don't miss that for a moment, right? Lord, right? Authority and, and power. Ultimate authority. Ultimate power. And they tell him, do not trouble yourself. Listen, listen, our, 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 our boss, our friend, doesn't want to bother you and doesn't want to inconvenience you. He, he, he's, you're not worthy. Right? He knows that he's not worthy to have you come in under his roof. And he's not going to presume to even approach you. But all you have to do, Jesus, is say the words, and his servant will be healed. It doesn't matter, Jesus, if you're 50 feet away, 500 feet away, 5,000 feet away, 5 miles away, 500 miles away. You speak the words, and my servant will be healed. See, what the centurion is saying through his friends is more personal than what the elders said. That he's, he's not worthy. Though, humanly speaking, people thought he was worthy, he understands that he's not worthy, and he's not worthy because of the power and the authority or the worthiness of Jesus that makes him not worthy. And, and, and of all the men, right, the centurion is going to understand authority. And he goes that, down that road in verse 8. 
But don't miss the first phrase of verse 8. For I, too, am a man under authority. That's profoundly significant. It speaks to the faith and the understanding that the centurion has. The centurion understands, listen, I've got a lot of power and authority. I say anything, and these hundred men are going to do it because my word has authority. But where does the centurion's authority come from? Well, it comes from the command structure of the Roman army because there's somebody directing the centurion and telling him what to say. So his word has authority because it's coming from a higher authority. And eventually you trace it all the way back to, to Caesar. But he has authority because he's under authority. I, too, am a man set under authority. You see the comparison that the centurion is making. I'm, the mem I'm a member of the Roman army. And I have authority. And my words that I speak are going to be obeyed because I'm under authority. Jesus, you too are under authority and you speak and your words will be heard and things will happen. Because he recognized that Jesus had to be under some authority to have the authority that he had and the power that he had. We know that to be the authority of God the Father who told Jesus what to do, who directed him, who gave him the words to speak. He would only speak what the Father told him to speak, who was doing the will of the Father. It's fascinating, isn't it? But here's the beauty of the gospel, is that we are not worthy. We're not worthy to have Jesus come to us. We're not worthy to approach him, but God in his grace pursued and approached us. He stepped in to the mess and the darkness and the sin and the evil that is in this world to pursue us. Our sin that cause the issues, our sin that cause the broken relationships and the pain and the heartache and the hardships, he steps in to that for us. You see, so when we understand and recognize our unworthiness, the gospel becomes so much more brilliant and bright Blinding, amazing, humbling, I could go on, glorious. So the question we have to be asking ourselves, it's a two-parter, you have to ask yourself both parts of this question. Number one, how do you see Jesus? Number two, how do you see yourself? You have to ask both. Because we see Jesus for who he really is, and we see ourselves for who we really are, we begin to recognize the beauty and the power of the gospel and how desperate we truly, truly are.
Jesus hears the, the, these words from, from these friends of the centurion. And we read in verse 8 that when he heard this, he, was, he marveled at him. He, he, was, he was amazed. Right? This centurion recognized the power and the authority that Jesus had just in speaking words. And it doesn't have, he doesn't have to be there to speak. He can speak him wherever he wants, and he has authority to do what he wants to do. Jesus is in awe of this man's humility, of not being worthy. He's amazed at his understanding of his authority that he has. His presence isn't needed, just his words are needed. The faith of the centurion is just extraordinary. And so Jesus turns to the crowd and says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such a faith. Like that, that's rebuke. He's hearing this and he turns and he says, you could learn something from him. It's not about, you remember how he had the, like the table was set for him to speak into like merit and worthiness and he didn't, he just went with them and now here's the, here's the kick. Where's your faith? Do you believe in the power and the authority that I have like the centurion does to the point where he says, I don't have to be there. He knows I can heal him from distance. How's your faith? Do you recognize that you're unworthy? And the centurion or the friends of the centurion return to the house, right? And they, they find the servant well, right? The, the centurion, he's healed, Right? The centurion is, is more perceptive and is more spiritually aware than the, the Jewish elders. And, and you realize that like the centurion right, never met Jesus. Right? The centurion never had a conversation with Jesus. Right? There were go-betweens, the Jewish elders and his friends. But he has a faith and a belief in the power and the authority of Jesus. And Jesus is going to have a conversation, this is in John's gospel, John chapter 20, he's going to have a conversation with Thomas after the resurrection, after he's been raised from the dead. And Jesus says to Thomas in verse 29, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God's. Blessed are you who recognize your spiritual poverty and your unworthiness and who you truly are. Yours is the kingdom of God because you understand the beauty and the power of God and his grace and his mercy. Our, our value and our worth 
is not based on our work, on our merit, on our misguided sense of worthiness. It's based on the saving work of Jesus who can deliver us from death. It's based on the supreme and the incomparable work of Jesus, nothing else. It's based on the beauty and the power of the gospel. It's based on the hope and assurance of the gospel. It's based upon our desperate and continued need for the gospel. Okay? That's the centurion and his servants. Now let's talk about the widow. Verses 11 to 17. Soon afterwards, we read that Jesus went down, went to a town called, called Nain. And again, these first two verses, verses 11 and 12, it's the setting for this encounter that Jesus has with this widow. Nain. I mean, Capernaum is kind of a, a hustling, bustling kind of place. Um, Nain is the polar opposite of that. Nain's a small little town, 30 miles southwest of Capernaum. It, it, it's, it's a place, it would, it would probably take you two days to get there. The train's horrible, the roads are horrible, not a good road system, right? It's going to take you two days to get from Capernaum to Nain. And, and, and Nain is this small little town just to the north of Mount Mora. And that's important. And so as Jesus is entering this town, and he has his disciples with him, he has this, this great crowd following him, they get close to the gates of this small little town, and they see a funeral procession. And there, there's a man who's being carried out to be, to be buried. And this, this young man is the, is the, is the only son of, of a widow. Right? I want you to, to put yourself there. This is probably one of the most agonizing and anguish-filled days of her life. The loss must have seemed too great for her to bear. She'd been down this road before. She, she buried her husband. And now she finds herself burying her only son. She's alone. She's desperate. She's vulnerable. She, she has no one left now to, to protect her. She's got no one left to, to provide for her. And, and there, there are many people from, from the town that, that recognize her situation and, and are supporting her and are, are mourning with her. They were showing compassion to her. But in a real sense, she's all alone. And so this widow now finds herself, along with the residents of, of the townspeople of Nain, 
wrestling with our common enemy, death, and sorrow, and grief. And it's in this situation that Jesus finds himself. Not a mistake, not a coincidence. It's where he finds himself. The Lord of life meets death. It's almost like this, this collision. The one who has power and authority that just speaks and things happen. He, he's, he's, he's this unstoppable force that God the Father has unleashed on this earth. And now he seems to be up against a seemingly immovable object. Death. And Luke says in verse 13 that when the Lord, don't miss that, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion. When the one who has ultimate power and authority, the creator and the sustainer of creation and of life, when he sees this widow, he has compassion. He is the God of all comforts. He comforts us, comforts us in all of our afflictions. And he looks at this widow and lovingly tells her, don't weep. It, it, it almost seems like not compassionate, but it's so compassionate. And then Jesus walks up to, to, the, to the beer. Now, that's, that's simply, that's a stretcher. Um, or depending, it, it could have been in this situation, it could have just been a, a, a plank of, of wood that they would have placed the body of this, this young man on, would have been covered, there would have been spices and things around him, and they're just carrying him outside the city, outside the town, excuse me, to, to bury him. Jesus tells this widow, don't weep. And he walks up and he touches the beer. He touches the stretcher. Now, if you're one of the men that's carrying this, that would be profoundly startling. Because Jesus would have just in that moment made himself ceremonially unclean. Numbers 19. But he's, he's the Lord of life. He has supreme power. He has supreme authority. doesn't matter to him. He's not going to be corrupted or contaminated by death. He's got power over it, for Pete's sake. He's the Lord of life. And Jesus commands the young man to, to arise. Now, remember, he, he's, what he's doing what he's speaking it's just his words that have power. Remember the centurion? Just say it and it'll happen. And Jesus tells this young man, arise. And the man sat up and began to speak. You see the authority of his words, the power of his words to give life 
to the dead. Now, I, I like putting myself in these, in these accounts, right? And we have sermon application team. We're meeting on Tuesday, and I, I mentioned this in passing. But I try to put myself there, and I, and I put myself as one of those men carrying the stretcher. And I wonder how in the world they didn't drop this guy. All right, because number one, if he walks up, if Jesus walks up and he touches it, I'm like, hmm. Like, you think about it, like, Jesus stopped death in its tracks, right? You think about it that way. Just, boom, stops it. And then he tells him to, to arise, and the man sits up and starts talking. I'm dropping the stretcher. <laughs> I'm like, what? And then Jesus gives this young man back to his, to his mother. Can you imagine this mom, this widow? The way that Jesus does is it implies that there's a value that this son held to, to his mom. The, the, the widow has, has her, her son back. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not alone. I, I was like, 30 seconds ago, I was alone. I'm not alone. And he's, he's, he's talking. I, I, I have, I'm going to be protected. I, I'm, I'm going to be provided for. I, I'm no longer vulnerable. I, I'm no longer at risk. This, this relationship that I had with my son that was broken by death has been restored by Christ. This, this man, this Jesus. Right? Is that not the hope that we have in Jesus? That every believer, right, through the crucifixion of Jesus, through the death of Jesus, has their sins forgiven. But that through the resurrection of Jesus, we have life. We have eternal life. That's the hope of the gospel. And so this crowd that's there, we read that fear sees them all, right? And this is, like, this isn't necessarily a, a cowering kind of fear. This is a kind of awe mixed with wonder. This means when you looked around the crowd, all their jaws were on the ground, trying to process what they just saw and what they just heard. And they say... And they glorified God, and they said, a great prophet has risen among us. Yeah, well, no kidding, right? And, and, that, and that's a natural conclusion. That, that's a good conclusion to draw in that situation that you're right, a great prophet has arisen among us. But they miss it, right? Because it's not a great prophet, it's the great prophet. He is the ultimate prophets. But they knew the stories. They knew that Elijah raised somebody, a, a, a son, a widow's son from the dead. They knew that Elisha raised a woman's son from the dead. And this is why the location of Nain is important. Because if you go to 2 Kings chapter 4 and, and read it this afternoon, it's cold outside now, right? You got to get, get over it. It's cold now, so stay inside. 
2 Kings 4, Elisha raises a woman's son from the dead. The woman wasn't, she wasn't a, a, a widow. But she raises her son, Jesus raises her son from the dead in the town of Shuman. This would have happened about 800 years before this account in, in Nain. Shuman is a small little town on the southwest side of Mount Mora, three to four miles from Nain. Now, this is why I say, to, like, you, you need to flesh this out for yourself. I don't have time. You're, you're not going to forget someone being raised from the dead 800 years ago. I don't think you would. That story would, that story would stay. That story, that would stick. And so three miles away, the same thing happened 800 years ago by the prophet Elisha. So when they say that a great prophet has risen among us, they're like, whoa. This just happened. And they say that God has visited his people. Man, what, a, what a true statement. But what they miss in this, they, don't, they miss the, the depth of the meaning of those words. Right? God is standing in front of his people. The long-awaited Messiah is there with his people. And Luke brings this account to an end by just saying that the, the, this report about Jesus spread through the whole of Judea and to the surrounding and all the surrounding country. And I'll tell you, I'm pretty sure that includes Shunem. But in this account, right, we see Jesus now taking the initiative to show compassion, to put his to display his power and authority to, to the people, his willingness to, to step in and meet the needs of the people. He's doing that on his own initiative. He comforts the widow. He restores this, her young son to life. And Jesus is the great prophet. Jesus is the Lord of life. He has the power over life. He has the power over death. Jesus is the one who has compassion on us when we suffer. Jesus is the one who strengthens our lives because we know that Jesus cares for us. And that should encourage us and that should embolden us. Jesus blesses us in ways that are absolutely astounding. In, in ways that we don't see. We miss it. But this is who this Jesus is. He is the great prophet. And, and the resurrection of the widow's son doesn't mean that, God, that, that, that God's going to raise people from the dead. That's not that what it means. The point is this, that we should, as we read this, we should be looking forward to that last 
day when we will be raised with incorruptible and immortal bodies to be with Jesus forever. We long for that day. Jesus is the only true comfort in times of death. He's the only hope in times of death. For those who have died and for those who still remain. He's our hope and he's our comfort. So do we glorify God? Are we full of praise? How often do we think about the fact that God visited us in person by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth? That Jesus perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father. He laid down his life on the cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead, which tells us that he defeated sin and that he defeated death. And he is our hope in the resurrection. Every week, we gather here for worship on Sunday the very day that Jesus was raised from the dead. We gather for worship here every Sunday to offer prayer to him, to sing praises to him, to hear his word preached. Do we do those things with a sense of awe mixed with wonder? He is our hope. He is our comfort. He is our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your words. Lord, I pray for myself my own heart and for my own minds and for those in this room, for those who may be listening online, watching online, for those who may listen to this later this week or months down the road, who knows. But I pray that we would never lose the sense of awe of who you are and what you've done for us through Christ. The hope that we have in Christ, knowing that we have eternity with Him and with you because of His mercy, because of His compassion, because of His power and authority and obedience to your will. Praise God. Praise Jesus. In your name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and for more information about Twin Villages Church, visit twinvillageschurch.org. Soli Deo Gloria. Thank you.